Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles. And this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we look at crucial updates from the battlefront, dig into the latest diplomatic develop, dig into the latest diplomatic developments in the EU, India, and Turkey, and we discuss the invasion's environmental impact. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground and our teams reporting across the world to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 25th of August, day 183. And today I'm joined by the Telegraph's defence and security editor, Dominic Nichols, assistant comment editor, Francis Dernley, and the Telegraph's Brussels correspondent, Joe Barnes. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from the war zone. Yeah, hi David, hi everybody. I hope you can hear me all right. I'm currently being bounced around by Her Majesty's Royal Navy uh, somewhere in the Yogin. Can't really say where. I'm not allowed to say where. I'm on a um, on a story that you'll be able to read about on Saturday. Uh, but for now, all I can say is that if the sound quality is is poor, that's because I'm in a glass reinforced plastic hulled vessel that only came into service this year i'm told uh brand new and we're being flung about so apologies for that um like i say i won't be able to tell you what what i'm, what I'm doing here but that'll all, that'll all be out on saturday and uh and some audio for the interviews i've done with some of the folk here on on monday um but if i can try and keep my balance and my lunch then i will uh, i will get through through the news of the last uh, the last 24 hours and what we've seen is a surprise visit, another surprise visit by Prime Minister Boris Johnson. He's in Kiev today. He's with uh, President Zelensky, uh, photographed on a walkabout. He has urged uh, Britons to, to endure the high energy bills, saying that Ukraine is paying in blood. So we, we should be able to pay uh, in, our, uh, in our finances. Uh, so he's there. Probably his last, almost certainly his last visit to Kiev as Prime Minister. The new new Prime Minister are going to be announced on I think it's the 5th or 6th of September. Francis will be able to tell us exactly, but but not long now till we get um, get a new Prime Minister. So it's almost certainly Boris Johnson's last visit. Also, um, from from on Independence Day yesterday, Ukraine's Independence Day, there was a strike in the town of uh, Chaplina, which is about 90 miles west of Donetsk in the Donbass region. There were two strikes 
on that uh, on that small town. The first strike destroyed a building and killed a, a child, and then the second strike shortly after that is said to have killed a, another 21 people when it hit a railway station and five uh, five uh, rail coaches that were there. So 22 people killed in total there for seemingly no no point whatsoever. Russia has said that they killed 200 Ukrainian fighters and knocked out a load of military equipment, but I think that's I think we could take that. As, as a load of rubbish. I mean, there are images from the town. You can go and find online. We've got it on our on our website. You can make your own mind up if you don't want to believe us. Um, and the last point I'll make just before I get flung around here is that today's UK Defence Intelligence update has released imagery from the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, imagery taken on the 21st of August, which shows uh, Russian armoured vehicles and other military trucks 60 metres away from reactor number five at Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Uh, they, there was some uh, some efforts to try and conceal them under uh, under other other sort of metal structures and pipes and all the rest of it, but it's, it's clearly visible that those armoured vehicles are there. This gives the gives the lie to Russia's claim that they're not they're not using it as a military in any way as a sort of military base and um, you know holding. They've been accused of holding the place hostage, holding the nuclear power plant hostage. Well, I think it's fairly strong evidence if you've got if you've got military equipment that you are putting within 60 metres of a one of the reactors i think it's fairly certain that you're not um doing what you really should do uh, there's no word yet on the iaea international atomic energy authority i think that's the second day um uh, inspectors who are trying to get in there just to make sure that the plant is safe um so no word there yet but if you have a look at the uk defense intelligence update on uh, on their twitter channel you'll see the images from the zaporizhia nuclear power plant i think i better take a break there it all gets a bit messy. Well, thank you very much, Dom. I think that's probably the first time on this podcast we've had somebody calling in live from a boat somewhere in the English Channel. So thanks, Dom, and do come on later when you're back on dry land. Francis, can I come to you uh, quickly just to expand maybe some of your thoughts on Boris Johnson's visit to Kiev? Thanks, David. Yes, I'm on dry land here at uh, Telegraph Towers. Um, yeah, it's been a, a, a... To expand on what Dom was saying there, first of all, to answer the remark that, uh, that he was asking when... The, uh, the the UK Prime Minister will be announced. It's on September the 5th, so not too long to wait now, though for those of us here who've been following it very closely, it's felt much longer um, uh, than, than, than the, uh, the few weeks that it has have been. Um, but just, yes, I wanted to pick up on Boris Johnson's remarks because, as I say, he, he has been in Kyiv um, yesterday marking Independence Day uh, for the Ukrainians and I'll read what his remarks are because I think he really understands the importance of the war perhaps more than a lot of other um, European leaders at present and so I'll quote them in full. We know that if we're paying in our in our energy bills for the evils of Vladimir Putin the people of Ukraine are paying them in their blood. That's why we know we must stay the course, because if Putin were to succeed, then no country on Russia's parameter would be safe. And that would be a green light for every autocrat in the world that borders could be changed by force. To all our friends, I simply say this. We must keep going. We must show as friends of Ukraine that we have the same strategic endurance as the people of Ukraine. And as I say, this comes in, I think, quite stark contrast to certain other European leaders' remarks, which I know Joe will be able to talk about later on. Um, 
clearly Boris Johnson's position on Ukraine has been much more consistent than his stance on almost every other um, policy of his, certainly in the domestic sphere. And I think actually it's to his credit. He's come under a lot of criticism um, here for all sorts of que- uh, all sorts of points that he's that he's made in recent weeks. But on this, I think uh, he has remained, as I say, consistent. And I think that history will be judged him very kindly as a as a consequence of that. Britain has been an earnswell supporter of. Uh, of Ukraine since the very beginning. But not only that, uh, I think he has seen the the real battle that is at stake here, that this is about something that is much broader than simply Ukraine itself, but a almost philosophical and existential point for Europe and the world about what kind of world that we want to live in. Is it one where Borders can be changed by force, one where might is seen as giving you a justification to uh, make right. Um, And if the answer is no to that, then that is why the battle in Ukraine is the first in what may be several battle lines that are being drawn on that very issue. Taiwan may well be another and there are several others. So I think I just wanted to to expand on on Dom's summary because I think uh, it's, it's very astute what he's saying on this point. And I think that there will be other European leaders who won't be saying this. And we should note that, as I'm sure we will in the coming days. Thank you very much, Francis. Well, I think that links nicely to going to Joe Barnes, our Brussels correspondent. Joe, you've written a story about Matteo Salvini, who's called on the European Italian politician, called on the EU to rethink its sanctions on Russia over Ukraine. This is amid fears of declining support for Kyiv, which we've discussed many times on the podcast. Can you talk us through what you've been writing about? Hello, folks. Yes, of course. Um, So, yeah, it really does build on nicely from what Boris Johnson was saying in Kiev. And what we reported on our front page story on Ukraine's Independence Day on Wednesday about kind of British fears that basically they're sending, Britain is sending diplomats out into Europe and arguing that actually the cost of letting Putin win the war is greater than kind of the cost of our spiraling bills, which uh, Boris Johnson put so nicely on his visit. But so one of the... um, things that I've picked up speaking to kind of diplomats and officials in Brussels is they're now concerned that opposition politicians and some that are on the cusp of power, such as Matteo Zalfini, have basically used this narrative and basically said, is it worth us having sanctions on Russia when kind of the effect is that it means that people in our country might be struggling to heat their homes, uh, they might not be able to afford food, uh, factories might have to go um, be shut down because of kind of energy costs or just the lack of energy supplies. Um, so Matteo Salvini, uh, back to him, is uh, an Italian politician. We could describe him as far right. Um, he is famously pro-Kremlin. He was once pictured wearing a Vladimir Putin T-shirt in Red Square and is a kind of a public admirer of the kind of the Russian president. Um, but he basically has called on the European Union to rethink its sanctions on Russia and ask the question, are these measures doing more harm to our economy than they are doing to the Russian economy? And so the diplomats I spoke to yesterday for this piece kind of put it quite clearly. They went, the message is simple. The cost of living crunch has given opposition politicians, whether they're far right, far left, or maybe actually kind of centrist liberal politicians, ample room to start attacking governments over their support for Ukraine when, as I said, there are fears about people's kind of being able to put food on the table. 
and they are acutely aware that this narrative will continue to build up as we move into the winter and the cost of energy continues to kind of creep up, cost of food continues to creep up. And they basically say it will become a kind of a key battlefield in domestic politics across Europe. And I, so I highlighted Salvini because Italy at the moment are contesting a election campaign after Mario Draghi basically kind of lost power and lost faith in his coalition government in Rome. And they are due to go to the go to the polls on September twenty fifth, and Matteo Salvini is part of a right wing coalition, which includes Berlusconi, uh, who is another friend of the Russian leader, um, and that has kind of prompted fears: Is Italy, say the European Union's third biggest economy, going to start arguing against the sanctions? And I think it's a narrative that Vladimir Putin will be sitting in the Kremlin, sitting in kind of his higher red towers and being kind of enjoying this. He's, he's constantly sought to blame Europe's economic woes on the crippling sanctions on Moscow, pushing men- messages like, your sanctions are hurting you more than they're hurting us. And as I, as I mentioned earlier, it's a, it's a message that Britain's been trying to spread kind of in the corridors of power in embassies around Europe. But actually, Boris Johnson came out and said it in kind of plain English, as, as we've said, that actually we're paying with fire energy bills, Ukrainians are paying with blood. And I think actually we've we've criticised Emmanuel Macron a fair bit for his handling of the conflict. But he also came out with a similar message and basically told French voters that, look, we're going to have to make sacrifices. The cost of freedom is more important than those sacrifices. We have to kind of end our era and our stages of abundance, he called it. Basically, yes, we've got to cut back. But if us cutting back means that we help Ukraine win the war, then that is a kind of a price worth paying. Thanks, Joe. Just a, a quick question from me. Um, do you get a sense in Brussels of, about how Salvini's comments are going down? Are they, are, do they think he'll be particularly influential? Um, do, do, do some think he's got a point? Or do most rally, for, rally more behind uh, the British and French line? I think as it stands, they are behind the British and French line. But it will have some resonance. We, have, we know that Hungary has previously spoken about... Um, the sanctions and how they have put like they have strangled the European economy of air and basically starved it of oxygen and just the fact that the Victor Orban Hungary's kind of loud mouth strongman prime minister uh, who is also kind of we can describe him as kind of Europe's closest leader to the Kremlin has said that we should la- relax sanctions we shouldn't go as far as as we have done in the west because they are hurting us more is his kind of message. And we've seen him negotiating with, he sent his foreign minister on, which was quite amusingly, a, a Hungarian Air Force jet, uh, which would be an EU Air Force jet, a NATO Air Force jet, to Moscow to basically say that we want to negotiate closer trade ties with Russia. We want to start buying more energy from you. Um, and even the Bulgarians, which is it's kind of, they, they, they paid high price for being so kind of anti-Kremlin at Stark. Um, and they were actually cut off from gas supplies from Russia uh, in April. Uh, but they are going to start renegotiating with Gazprom to try and turn that supply on, which will likely mean they, they pay for their gas in rubles, which is a breach of kind of the EU sanctions regime. But is Brussels, is the European Commission going to do anything about it if the argument is, well, we need energy because we need to keep the lights on, we need to keep our factories on? Just before I bring in Francis here... um. 
from your perspective, being in Brussels, do you think there are big splits coming in the EU further down the line, the closer we get into the, the cost of living crisis and, and this winter? Or do you think that may, maybe they will, they, that, that there will be a united European front going into the winter? So I think the message about Europe re- relaxing or loosening the sanctions will get louder. Um, but I don't think it's going to be from the governments um, that are in power in the EU. I think it will come, as I, as I, as I painted in this in this piece of writing in today's paper, is it will probably come from the, the fringes, the kind of the the loud noises will come from the far the far right, the far left, um, or maybe some more kind of mainstream opposition parties will also take the message. But I think one thing that does kind of unite Europe um, and much of the West is that they want an end to the war and they think that Russia is in the wrong. But it's about how kind of you punish Russia, how you kind of help Ukraine bringing an end to the war is is probably where they differ. And we I don't think there is still a, a stable picture on that. So the, the French, the Germans even have different ideas of how the war should end. Um, the Poles, the Baltic states, the hardline uh, countries will, they are completely resolute with their backing of of Ukraine. So I think there's going to be, there, there will be splits on that. But I think what we have to look out for in the kind of the winter months is actually how quickly and how fast does the EU move with its next package of sanctions, um, its next uh, kind of package of military aid, because um, the EU itself has uh, handed over over 2 billion euros, I think it's 2.5 billion uh, now uh, to basically subsidise European countries sending weapons to Ukraine. So that's kind of a big step for them. So I think instead of a full-blown kind of, how would we say it, a full-blown kind of calling for the sanctions to be loosened. We're just going to see kind of Europe's response and Europe's assistance um, to Ukraine heavily slowed down. Thanks, Joe. Francis, do you want to come in on that? Sure. I just had a general question, Joe, which is you were talking about these European leaders who are more pro-Putin or at least have been much more sceptical about the generally used line on the war in Ukraine. Why is it that support for Russia doesn't seem to have hurt these politicians domestically. I think many of us expected that that would be the case, that these these leaders who had perhaps had past associations with with Putin or, or sort of Kremlin sympathies would, would be hurt. But actually, that doesn't really seem to be happening. But what's your take on all that? I think it all comes down to um, basically domestic politics. We, we use Hungary as an example. Um, it's a, a a very poor country, one of Europe's poorest. Um, and basically, instead of being picturing himself as what we see as pro-Kremlin, that he pictures himself as someone who uh, Viktor Orban, this is, the Hungarian prime minister, is fighting for his voters. And that his constant message is, oh, look, Europe's constantly trying to make you poor, it's trying to hurt you, it's trying to affect the way you live and how you want to live. Um, so yes, we would describe him as kind of pro-Kremlin, but he probably in the cases he does not seem like that in Hungary. He is seen as someone who's fighting for the voters' interests, he's fighting for their pockets, for their views on kind of family values and stuff like that, which will mostly and often do clash with the way that Brussels thinks the world should work. If we'll just come on back on that, I mean, I, on these pro-Russian 
leaders and the point you were making about how they just don't seem to be being impacted domestically and that's partly because they are maybe being interpreted differently in the domestic press but also this issue that actually it's domestic issues that are always going to be in the forefront and for of, of the minds of of, of people uh, that is of course the real risk that we've talked about many times on this podcast that as important as ukraine is as a background issue that when the energy crisis really begins to bite, that people in countries across Europe are going to look to their bills before they look abroad. They're going to look to their own domestic affairs before the, the, the issues happening more broadly around the world. And the huge risk of that, of course, is that they don't really see the connections between the two. And, if, and any connections they do see will be on blaming their domestic concerns with the war in Ukraine and will want to see an end to that war as soon as possible. Now, of course, that's their prerogative. And, 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 you know, that's the benefit of democracy is that people can immediately make their views clear at the ballot box. But the risk of that, of course, in the broader term is that leaders who benefit from this are those who are on the fringes who have traditionally been perhaps more pro-Kremlin or Putin sympathisers, and they will be the ones that will inevitably benefit in any time of economic crisis, um, just because they are the opposition parties. And so that is, again, one of these challenges is not just the current crop of leaders in Europe who are going to be making very difficult decisions and will have increasing pressure on them due to this energy crisis, but it's going to be the the actual as we have elections in in the months and years ahead and who knows how long this war could go on that 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 will be the real shift and Matt, perhaps even that's part of Putin's broader strategy is that because he knows that with the election cycles that will that will come that may well see the back of some of these these leaders that we've had up until now that that may well benefit Russia in the long run look at how precarious the situation is in Germany at the moment the traffic light coalition as it's known could implode here in Britain we've already seen the removal of uh, of Boris Johnson, obviously very pro uh, Ukraine, as I was talking about earlier on. Now it would appear that Liz Truss is very likely to win the leadership contest, and obviously she is equally as hawkish if Boris as Boris, if not more so. But that wasn't necessarily guaranteed when the. Uh, the leadership contest began. There were other contenders who were not as hawkish, it might be said. One might even say that Rishi Sunak, who is the only other remaining contender in the race, is less hawkish than Liz Truss. And it was looking very likely that he may well succeed Boris at the beginning of that leadership contest. So all of these factors, this is happening around Europe, all of these things are, are almost certainly going to, to play into a, a very different political picture, let's say, in six months' time. And we don't yet know, of course, what the impact of that is, is going to be. Just on that, Joe, I mean, are there any major shifts that is going to occur, election cycles or anyone's tenures coming in within the top brass of the European Union itself? Uh, so we, we have Italy coming up, which um, Italy is a, a major player in the EU. It's one of the biggest countries. It has the third biggest economy. So they their, their voters go to the polls on the 25th of September, I think it is off the top of my head. Uh, the Greeks have an election potentially coming up soon in the next year or so, as their kind of their country kind of suffers with the cost of living crisis. I was speaking to a, a Greek colleague of ours um, in the European Commission yesterday, and was, they were saying that actually Greeks who love their summer holidays and they cherish their summer holidays, and it's a, one of the, the kind of the times of the year they really look forward to. Um, they no longer can afford to do that because the prices have have gone up that much. So. 
So suddenly, when as, as we've been saying, when the when the cost of living kind of crunch hits you in your pocket and stops you from going on holiday, or does it does it even stop you from kind of buying a pint in the pub? Does your view on foreign policy then change drastically enough because your kind of domestic situation, which you'd normally take for granted, has changed? And I, I think as well, one of the interesting things that someone pointed out to me yesterday, another journalist was like, Joe, you've never lived through a kind of a real period of inflation because you're quite young. And I was like, no, that's right. And actually, so how are the young people going to respond to the war in Ukraine and Europe's support for kind of Ukraine when suddenly they can't afford to do the, the nice things that they kind of become accustomed to? And it is, it, Europe as kind of diplomats, officials, bureaucrats, politicians um, who are pro-Ukraine have kind of been trying to reinforce this message uh, that actually the cost of living crisis isn't down to sanctions on Russia. It's down to the it, basically Putin trying to squeeze gas suppliers and, and stuff like that. It, they're, it's they're not to blame. It's Putin's to blame because uh, that's, that's one thing that politicians are going to have to do. They're going to have to, if they want to carry on supporting Ukraine, they're going to have to continually justify their position while people are suffering at home. Let's um, zoom out from the EU and talk a little bit about uh, some developments in international diplomacy, which might be slightly more encouraging for Ukrainian listeners. Just before that, a couple of things. Um, Dom Nichols, I know, is getting into position potentially to come back on. He's been sending us pictures of aircraft carriers and naval ships as, as, his, as his boat docks. So that's very exciting. And we've also been sent just one um, comment from a listener who, who makes a very good point, one we cannot forget, that, of course, in Ukraine itself, there's, there's gas shortages and heating problems. Uh, households have been want to switch to alternative energy sources as well. So when we talk about the cost of living crisis and the energy crunch that's coming and it started really in Europe, let's not forget that, of course, that, that is happening in, in Ukraine itself as well. Um, Francis, can I come to you? There's been two interesting developments which are worth commenting on, one to do with India and one to do with Turkey. Sure. Thanks, David. Yeah, well, we've talked on this podcast several times about a very worrying trend that we first saw in those UN abstentions uh, several months ago when the war began, uh, which was the sort of two blocks forming potentially of emerging economies uh, and sort of the old style democracies, as it were, with the emerging economies tending to abstain on the issue of the war uh, rather than condemning Russia outright. But there's been a welcome development in the last 24 hours in that India, for the first time uh, yesterday, voted against Russia during a procedural vote at the UN Security Council on the issue of Ukraine. Um, this was following a, uh, a video by President Zelensky, who actually addressed the meeting. And as I say, so far, New Delhi has actually abstained at, of, of all votes at the Security Council in condemning Russia, much to the, I think it's fair to say, frustration of Western powers um, at the at the table, led, of course, by um, the United States. So I wanted to comment on that because it's not been really very wildly, widely picked up. But if it is indicative of a trend, it would be, I think, suggestive of a lot of work that's been being done behind the scenes diplomatically by Western powers to try and persuade countries like India, and no doubt there are others, that this vote that they or abstention, should I say, in the past um, on the issue of Russia is is not a good idea. And perhaps who knows what what negotiations have been taking place. But I think that this might be suggestive of of an encouraging shift. Just one other issue I wanted to comment on um, in relation to the broader international scene that's evolving is, as you say, David, Turkey. Now, Turkey, as again, we've 
discussed a lot uh, on the podcast, has this rather unique position of being in NATO and straddling Europe and the East. And as as Turkey's traditional historical role has always been uh, as, as, as a sort of broker between East and West. Um, and of course, in some areas, this has been very beneficial, I would argue, for the West in relation to the war in Ukraine, because they've been able to uh, remain part of, of, of NATO and have essentially been, able, been forced to choose a side. But in other areas, there have been some worrying trends. Uh, they were, for instance, um, are still going to be doing more trade with uh, Russia than other European powers. And indeed, of course, they were the ones that brokered the um, the grain deal, which one could say is a positive. But I think there were elements of the optics of that that were quite concerning President Erdogan shaking hands with Putin, for instance. Um, but as I say, this interesting development is that Ankara has, has made a very, uh, and indeed it was actually President Erdogan himself, um, uh, supporting Ukraine's territorial integrity and rejecting the illegal annexation of Crimea. Now, this isn't actually anything particularly new. Um, Turkey has has always condemned what occurred in Crimea in 2014 and the annexation. But nonetheless, I think the timing of this is very significant. So he was speaking a video message to the second Crimea platform summit, which is essentially where they were talking about the future of Crimea. Now, you would have expected, I think, that if... Turkey was perhaps leaning more eastwards in the long term, perhaps thinking more in terms of peace negotiations, concessions, all of these sort of conversations that you would have expected for them to perhaps not make these remarks, um, which, as I say, from a Russian perspective, would be considered very, very incendiary indeed. Um, and I think, again, that it may well be able to be interpreted as suggestive of a further hardening in Ankara of a pro-Ukrainian stance, um, which, as I get, again, I say is is very much, I would say, favourable for the long-term prospects of Ukraine, given this timing at this moment, um, which is obviously a very precarious one for the for the war generally. Um, I'll just read a few of the remarks President Erdogan said. So he said, ensuring the safety and well-being of our Crimean Tatar compatriots is among Turkey's priorities, obviously alluding to the fact that once uh, Crimea was part of the um, Ottoman Empire and sort of the broader Turkey, um, Turkish um sphere of influence. Um, The return of Crimea to Ukraine, of which it is an inseparable part, is essentially a requirement of international law. So, as I say, strong remarks indeed, to put it mildly, and ones that I think in the broader context should be seen as, as a significant intervention. Absolutely. Thank you, Francis, for talking us through uh, that. Joe, can I come to you? You mentioned you're you're writing a piece about the uh, latest update from the ISW. Um, Can you tell us about that? What what have they argued? So the Institute for the Study of War, um, a US-based think tank, has been doing a a kind of daily assessment of the conflict in Ukraine uh, right back from February kind of time. And um, if you don't follow them on Twitter or have a look at their website, I would kind of recommend you do that if you're kind of a close watcher and interested in what's going on. So they do a very detailed kind of breakdown. But one thing they highlighted today, they have done some analysis um, about the land that Russia has lost and has won during the conflict. And say so Russian units have lost now an area of land larger than Denmark since Moscow's deepest advance into Ukraine 
on March the 21st. And then in the last 39 days, Russian forces have only managed to seize uh, a land the size of Andorra, uh, which is uh, basically tiny. <laughs> um, so it kind of gives a real interesting perspective to how the kind of war is going on. And kind of Russia is like it's grinding its slow progress through kind of the Donbass as Ukraine has actually managed to kind of dramatically chip away at previously occupied territories and basically liberate them. And um, they, 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 the Institute of Study War basically looked at as well, um, and they gave quite a nice opinion of Sergei Shoigu, the Russian defence minister's basic, basic claim that Russian forces had deliberately slowed down their offensive operations to reduce the number of civilian casualties. And kind of in response to that, uh, the ISW said, Shoigu's statement may also represent an attempt by the Russian MOD to set information conditions to explain and excuse the negligible gains Russian forces have made in Ukraine in the last six weeks. It's basically, Shoigu's statement is likely an attempt to explain away their failings. So, like, that's, it's, it's a real kind of interesting kind of tidbit of information that we're kind of getting from their analysis of the, the land lost is, uh, they've managed to lose 17,375 square miles since March the 21st. And then since Russia announced its kind of operational pause on offensives on July the 16th, they've only managed to cover or uh, capture roughly about 174 square miles of new territory. So kind of, does this show the impact that Western weapons are having on the conflicts? In Ukraine, it shows the resilience of the Ukrainians to actually be making far more progress than we probably give them credit for at times. Um, it just basically shows how rubbish uh, the Russians are doing at the moment. Thank you, Joe. I, Dom, I think you, you're able to speak. Uh, you've been listening to all of this. I don't know how much you've caught. Um, would you like to come back or add anything to any of that? Um, yeah, okay. I'm actually just in a car about to uh, have to hand in my escorted visitor's pass, so I'm afraid I can't speak right now. Come back in five, please. Sure thing. No no worries, Dom. Um, do do just let us know when, when you can come back on that. Um, Francis, can I come to you? There's been some interesting... Um, it's quite speculative, but there's been some interesting... Um, news around the car bomb in near Moscow that killed Daria Dugina. Um, this, this happened on Saturday night. Uh, she was the daughter of a prominent um, nationalist uh, intellectual, if, if you like. Um, Francis, what's the latest here? And what, what can it tell us about uh, what's happening in Russia? Well, we talked um, immediately afterwards about how swift the SFB and general Russian authorities and Russian voices uh, were to blame Ukraine for that car bomb that killed her um, near Moscow over the weekend. But um, there's been some interesting remarks made about by intelligence experts who've said that although Kiev is capable of orchestrating such an attack, they actually think the prospect of it is very unlikely. And obviously from some arguments for why it would be unlikely is that it risks escalating the war in a way that Ukraine would would not want. Um, so, you know, for instance, a, job, a general mobilisation within uh, Russia. But also it just talks about the logistical challenges of, of launching such an operation, the risks inherent in it if something went wrong, for instance, and basically questioning whether it would be worth it. So if that's true, um, and I say it's just speculative, then uh, it would be 
I think a, a sign that it's more likely that what occurred was something that is internal to the Russian state itself, whether that be some sort of FSB targeting or maybe a, an internal issue that we don't yet know about. There was some speculation that it may be business orientated an attempt to call to kill Alexander Dugin. Um, and so I think it's just interesting that, as I say, that, that this, this is rumbling on, but the more analysis that is done, the less likely that the initial reaction that it, this was Ukraine that was responsible for this actually is to be truthful. Um, and so in that sense, we should follow it very closely. There was also um, an interesting listener question that came in um, which uh, essentially tried to ask whether the assassination could be a false flag operation aimed at justifying, in quotation marks, Russia going after Ukraine's leadership itself. I mean, I think it's an, an interesting point to speculate about, um, although I think it's probably false for, for two reasons. The first being that I think it gives Alexander Dugin, uh, or Dugin as he's sometimes pronounced, um, too much credit into his significance, as I talked about in the podcast before. This idea that he's in some way Putin's Rasputin or Putin's brain is a real overegging of his significance. And I think the idea that he could be correlated to the Ukrainian leadership um, uh, in terms of significance would be inaccurate. But also, I think it's it's false in the pure sense that w Russia doesn't need a justification to go after the Ukrainian leadership. It has already sought to do so since the very beginning of the war. Um, there were numerous attempts on Zelensky's life. We know that. Um, and uh, so they don't need any justification to do so. Uh, they could, I'd say, launch uh, such an attack at any time and would, would deem themselves morally justified to do so, however um, egregious it would appear to, to Western and Ukrainian commentators. Well, I'm finally in a, a, a reasonably static position. I'd be able to, to add here. I'm sorry I couldn't really speak earlier on. I was in, let's, let's shall we say, I was in the smallest room in the boat where there was a switch that said pump overboard or pump to tank to give you give you the idea of the splendour with which I was uh, treated by the Royal Navy. No offence, it was a wonderful day. Thank you. Um, all, I'd, all I'd add here, listening to the comments from Joe and Francis, fascinating as always, is I think Russia's in a real pickle at the moment in their, in their narrative and in their comms. Look at the words from so uh, Sergei Shoigu saying that they're no longer taking offensive action because they, they suddenly care about civilian casualties. I mean, you know, we know that's a lie. Look at how they've got themselves in a bit of a mess over the assassination of Dario Dugina. And, and is it, is it uh, Russian, uh, sorry, is it um, uh, Ukrainian spies? Is it uh, gangland? Is it, is it whatever? I mean, they've not come up with a plausible explanation for that. And as I, as I said the other day, regardless of what it was, something got through. So, so this Ru Russia as this, as this strong state and Putin as this strong guy who's, who's there to defend Russia and is all that stands between the Russian people and these hordes of sort of NATO-inspired crazies. I mean, th that's chipping away at that. And then finally, we still haven't had a, a, a convincing explanation from Russia about the attacks in Crimea. So all of these, all of these episodes, and when they fail to get back on the front foot in, in terms of the comms and the narrative, or they come out with rubbish like Shoigu said about the civilian casualties, it, they just they are just reeling. They do not have a comprehensive plan on the battlefield. They are increasingly isolated strategically, or, or relative to the the bulwark that is still in place. You know, I, I take on board what Joe was saying earlier on about uh, changes in, in Europe, and, and you're always going to get differences of opinion in democracies. But I just think it's really interesting to look at this incoherent or incomplete or, or absent 
narrative from from Russia about their their campaign. I mean, they launched this. They've been thinking about this for eight years as a minimum, probably a lot longer. And yet it's taken them completely by surprise. I just think it, it's really interesting what's happening on the information front. And I'm, I'm going to have to take a pause there. But, but thanks, everybody. Thank you uh, very much, Dom. I think we're starting to come to the end of our time today. So can I just have your final thoughts? And actually, Francis, I know you've got a note here about um, the uh, environmental impact of the uh, conflict. Would you like us to talk us through that? Sure. Well, I have a a listener to thank for this, Simon. Um, I won't name his full name in case he doesn't want me to. But he sent me a very interesting uh, study in the Journal of the Science of Total Environment, not the catchiest title as journals go but nonetheless um and it just talks about the impact of the war on the environment generally now i know many listeners will be thinking why on earth does that matter why you know why should we be thinking about the environment there are far bigger priorities at this very moment and and i agree in the sense that the 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 war shouldn't be framed in terms of sort of thinking about net zero or anything like that but that's not what this piece is saying this is actually talking about how it's the war has triggered a tsunami of 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 impacts on the environment that will actually dramatically impact the world economy um, and food security particularly so it goes into quite a lot of detail but essentially it's saying that um, this the war in its in and of itself may actually produce an environmental disaster so although the war is ongoing there's evidence of severe air pollution and greenhouse gas emissions that are resulting from the intense fighting Warfare activities are being conducted, obviously, in the vicinity of Zaporizhia, which has enormous risks on a radioactive level. Biodiversity is being drastically affected due to intense deforestation and habit destruction, just which are the implications, of course, of always of war. Bombing, trench and tunnel uh, excavations will likely negatively impact soil degradation and landscape morphology um, and effect- and water availability and quality are likely to be affected due to infrastructure destruction and the transport of pollutants to water reserves and it goes on and it goes on but what this was saying is is that all of this will hamper food production and the social cohesion and everything else within uh, Ukraine and wider Europe and will have a very big impact. And I just thought it was an example of, you know, when you start talking about the environment, everything, of course, is connected, whether it be um, food supplies in one country, whether it be um, water health in one place. Of course, the, the dangers around Zaporizhia would have a huge impact across the whole of Europe if something were to go wrong there. And I just thought it was an interesting way of reframing what is going on. Of course, first and foremost, this is a human tragedy, but it is also a tragedy for the very soil of, of Ukraine itself. Um, this will have something, and, and as the piece goes into talking about it in a lot of detail, this isn't something that's easily rectified. This will be years, if not decades, for the ecological damage that has been wrought in Ukraine by by the war um, to be recovered, if indeed it can recover. And it just needs to be seen more broadly in that in that context. This isn't something that, that relates to, you know, nature doesn't recognise borders. It's something we will all feel the impact of. And in a sense, the food security is only one part of that. But that is the one that is the most acute right now. But there may well be others further down the road. So that's my final thought. It's just a different way of framing this conflict um, and one that uh, I hadn't read before. So thank you very much, Simon, for sending it to me. Thank you, Simon. And thank you, Francis, for that. I think we've lost uh, Dom to to Portsmouth. Uh, 
Uh, thank you, Dom, very much for coming on and telling us a little bit about what you're doing and and for some of his analysis. So, Joe, uh, you're our guest today. Would you like to tell... Would, can we have your final thoughts? What should our listeners be thinking of um, in regards to the EU and European politics in today and the next few months? Um, I was going to go on a slightly different track uh, from the European argument. Um, but no, I just, I, just, I just want to kind of... And it's a, almost a look back and almost a praise of Boris Johnson. I think uh, as he made his final visit, to Kiev, obviously, kind of his political detractors in the UK, um, and there, there are many, sort of sought to criticise him. But I just think um, it's kind of wrong to criticise a man who has done so much, and he was given Ukraine's highest honour uh, for a foreign kind of citizen uh, while he was on his visit, and he was given a plaque on the Alley of the Brave, as it's been kind of called in Kiev. Um, so I just think that actually, if Boris Johnson's premiership goes down as kind of one of these controversial and kind of scandal-ridden premierships. Uh, actually, we should look back at what he's done for kind of Ukraine and kind of praise him for that if, if that's something we're, we're going to do because he's, he's done a great deal in convincing Western leaders and uh, when it was kind of when him and the Americans were alone in kind of January kind of trying to convince other leaders to start sending weapons and protective gear to Ukraine... Uh, he was kind of a lone voice with the Americans in that, and now he's uh, one of one of many voices. But he has kind of stood out and really tried to use his kind of time in Downing Street to help the Ukrainians, and I, I think they'll be very thankful to him for that. And uh, a lot of the Ukrainians that I speak to are very thankful for the British for that. So it's kind of it's a it's a, a friendship that will endure not just between Boris Johnson and Vladimir Zelensky, but I, I'm sure that. Ukrainians for, for years to come will be thankful for kind of the British input and support that they've received uh, from us. Ukraine the Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk we do read every message and we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world ukraine the latest is produced by louisa wells and giles gear and today on twitter Gemma farrell